And in Psalm here to verses 153 to 160, David goes on and he, he says, in the midst of all the words that he used for Scripture, and now he's speaking to the Lord here, and it's basically like an incredible uh, uh, the wisdom literature and almost a prayer. He says, Consider mine affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget thy law. Plead my cause and deliver me, quicken me according to thy word. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they seek not thy statutes. Great are thy tender mercies, O Lord, quicken me according to thy judgments. Many are my persecutors and mine enemies, yet do I not decline from thy testimonies. I beheld the transgressors and was grieved, because they kept not thy word. Consider how I love thy precepts, quicken me, O Lord, according to thy loving kindness. Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. And we see here that David is he's telling us something new. Although these verses seem to be greatly, they, they seem to be greatly uh, similar, but there are different emotions and different feelings that we're seeing here through King David. He says, consider mine affliction. In verses 153 and 154, plead my cause. Then he's asking the Lord to help him. He's going through still rough times in his life. And even as we, as, our, as we age and our years grow, grow heavy, basically, there's, in every season of life, there's different types of trials. When you're younger, there's, the, your, there's your work, there's who you're going to marry, why you're going to have kids, how you're going to get a house, what kind of education. And then you have kids, are they going to be healthy, are they going to be okay, and sometimes they're not. And then you have parents to take care of as you get older. And then as you get older, you start having health issues. And all through that, we see that happening and playing out in David's life in many ways. And then we see in the midst of all of the complications of the trials, we see David was involved in sin and he did have many problems. And he came back and he was telling the Lord, consider mine affliction. And I believe that's part of his affliction. He's talking about the trials. And some of the times our afflictions come from our own um, compromised decisions. But he says, I, I have known of old that thou hast, founded, thou hast founded thy words forever. He's saying, when the heavens and the earth be destroyed, thy word stands up no matter what. And we're going to look at some verses here that are extremely important. And I believe that this is the foundational principle also, what David's trying to teach us here. Right now we're in the heart and in the mind of David. And all the commandments of the Lord are true. He also not only just calls God's word, God's testimonies and his precepts and his judgment, he calls them God's prophecies and his precepts and these foundational principles. And David has absolutely no doubt he takes no credit at all. And I think this is something very important that we need to look at. He takes no credit for being a Messiah. He's not a Messiah. He's not, he's, he's not a a messenger sent from heaven who is a deity that has the power of Jesus Christ. So he gives homage and he gives worship to Christ himself. And he's making that very plain here because he speaks about his own sin. He speaks about his afflictions. That's one thing you never saw with Christ anywhere in Scripture. Anywhere did you ever see Christ beg the Lord forgiveness for his sins because he never sinned. And so that's a big, big divide between David and between Christ. And that's another problem today, still amongst the Jewish ranks, is there was a real high lifting up of Abraham and Moses and David. 
But there's no talk about Isaiah 53. You don't hear messianic prophecies. It's a very dangerous area. But David has no doubt. He takes no credit for being any Messiah. Christ is our Messiah, and our promises of God are founded forever. And David knew that. He knew that the Word of God is the one to hold on to. And basically, the Psalms that had been written were called the Mashiel. That's what they were called, and basically they were so important and foundational, basically in, in primers and teaching children. And we see that all throughout the book of Proverbs, how Solomon goes back on Wednesday evenings in our prayer meeting. He goes back to these words of David, and he confirms them. And so right now we see that God's promises, they're founded forever, and that basically that the Word of God is one must have in all of their being. And can someone read and look up 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20? And, the, and these, these prophecies of God, another word that we see used for the word of God, are the promises of God. And we can really hold on to that word because when the Lord gives us a promise, unlike us, he never backs out on them. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20. What a powerful short little verse. Look at what Teresa just read. Thank you, Teresa. For the promises of God are yea. They're an encouragement. And then we see how Paul says amen to them. He gives a benediction and how wonderful these words are unto the glory of God by us. And he says, David says, consider my infliction in these verse two verses in 153 and 154. Where else can we go when we are afflicted? You know, sometimes when you're afflicted and you just want to be alone, it's not easy. You're alone and you sometimes you just don't want to be bothered. You don't want people coming to you and telling you how to live your life and thinking they know what your affliction is and sometimes they don't. And so the greatest thing to do with David is saying when you get to that point and it's such abject sorrow, you go to him and you have that one-on-one -on -one relationship with him. Where else can we go? You know, oh, remember there was an old hymn that said, where could I go but to the Lord? That's a good question. Lisey. Yes. That's right. Amen. Right. And today, basically, that's a great point. Today, you know, we consider as Christians, we consider the Beatitudes that the Lord has given us and how, well, how blessed it is that we're meek. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And the Lord, with his people, he will comfort. He even comforts those with common grace that do not even accept, they don't, that, that they absolutely reject him for a time. He does. That's how wonderful and long-suffering is. And I heard a message last week on the way to church. I remember it's been all, a week already. It's going by kind of quick. And it was Dr. James Boyce was talking about what would the Beatitudes sound like today if they were rewritten by those that are empowered? What would they sound like? And I have to paraphrase this because he did such a beautiful job. I wish I would have written him down. And one of them went like this. Blessed are the rich, so everyone follows them. Blessed are the Hollywood, blessed are the Hollywood entertainers because all worship them. 
Blessed are they that are wealthy because they're the ones that are to be revered. And, and stuff like that. It wasn't, it, when you take these commandments and you take the Beatitudes of Christ, look at the servitude in them. Look at how the Lord talks about how long-suffering He is and He will be there to comfort those that mourn. Blessed are, blessed, blessed are they that they are, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. And you go all the way down the line and you see how the Lord is a servant to us, especially while He's on this earth. And so my point is here, in our affliction, the Lord is there and He will serve us. Remember years ago, I remember, um, do you ever feel backed into a corner with such hard hardship? It seems impossible to get past it. I don't, I don't know if I've, I don't know if we, if we talked about this before or not, but I'm going to bring it up. It's, I remember, I remember sitting in my office and I had some kind of medicine this one doctor had given me and I'm sitting there and I remember it was, I was studying a well, getting ready for a Sunday school class. And all of a sudden that night, I'm, I'm looking at the computer screen and there's a big black circle on it. And I'm like, what is that? I thought, well, was my computer going bad? So I looked away from the computer and I look around the room and there was a black spot everywhere I looked. I put, an, I put my hand over this eye and looked fine. Then I put my hand over this eye and there was a big, great, big black spot and I couldn't see out of this eye except the little light at the end. And I'm like, what is this? I was scared to death, and it was late, so I, I prayed, Lord, what do I do? So it's amazing what the Lord does. I had to live with this for six months, but what happened along the way? I go down to, uh, my doctor said, go, go over to Wilmer Eye Clinic down there in Falls Road. They're really good. I don't know. I've never been to an eye doctor. I go down there. They looked at it, and they said they couldn't do anything for me. And they looked at it, and they, they started taking pictures and all, and I'm like, they're, they're like, we don't know what's going on. Out of nowhere... There's this doctor that comes in. She's a Harvard grad. She's one of the best in the country on, 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 on retinal diseases and stuff. She takes me in the back room for an hour, and she looks behind my eye in this incredible machine, and there's, I have a cyst on my, on my retina. It was about to burst. So for a couple weeks, it was getting worse, and then she, I, I saw her two weeks later, and she goes, what kind of medicines are you taking? And there was this one medicine that they put me on. I don't take none of that stuff. I hate conventional medicine. I hate it. But I do it when I have to. And she said, throw this stuff in the garbage. She said, I know for a fact that one of the residual, whatever the symptoms and what the after effects is blindness. And if your retina, if it bursts and it bleeds, you're done. So I stopped it. Six months later, it went away. But you ought to try driving with a big circle in your eye. I went to the Lord. I mean, he's the great physician, and look what happens. And, you, you know, this is just one of a million en endless examples you can think of where something comes out of nowhere, and you're like, boy, it wasn't like this yesterday. Out of nowhere, wow, you know, I've got this diagnosis, or my, my friend, or my family, or whatever. Where do we go to well, our afflictions? And so we see how the Lord will get us through it one way or the other, no matter what. I truly believe that David was inspired always by our Lord, and he was always looking for something. Isn't that what today, today is? It's all, people are always looking for something. But the Christian looks for something different. It's like, it's one of these things where today, it's like no matter where anybody is, they're never satisfied. They're never happy. They're never comforted. They're never happy in their marriage, or they're not happy in their job. I looked at the statistics today, and this new percentage came out. 
86% of people that work today hate where they work and they're not making enough money. They live paycheck by paycheck and they detest where they work. That's a hard way to live every day. And so they, they basically, they're not satisfied. But the Christian becomes encouraged and satisfied because there's an ultimate goal. There's an objective. And I believe David had a real good understanding of this and could teach and leave these words and his encouragement filtered through these next verses. Let's read these verses and I think you'll get an understanding of what I'm trying to say here. Isaiah 65, verses 16 to 18. Can somebody look those up? Let's read those first. Isaiah chapter 65, verses 16, verses 17, and verse 18. Thank you. There's one particular part of this that really comes to mind. If this is enough verses that we could talk about these, probably for many Sunday school classes. But what about where in verse 17 Isaiah says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered. What does that mean? Nor come into mind. Anyone? What does that mean? Anybody have any uh, encouragement there or any, anything to say? Right. Do we really want to leave this earth and go into heaven and still have all of these burdens hanging over us <laughs> and think about it? I'm not saying that we're, we're, basically, we're going to be recreated as some kind of a cultist zombie that our minds are just totally clear and we're walking around like robots. The Lord's going to replace, He's going to, He is going to enhance our thoughts, and He's going to have us doing so many wonderful things. I think we're going to be so busy that we don't have time to think about these things on this earth or to bring sin into heaven. And can we really process what's being said here? I don't think we really can because it's so wonderful. But can we have enough faith to trust in Him? And I think that's what David is talking about is one day soon, and he's in his older ages now. Older age now, soon he's going to be with the one that he spoke of so wonderfully and defended in his, in his ministry and in his kingship on here on this earth. How about 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13? Could someone look that one up? Second Peter 3.13, anyone? I know, it's a little kind of tucked in there around Hebrews and right before Revelation. <laughs> it's a tough one. Thank you, Marianne. 
What a powerful verse. He's saying we look for this promise. And basically these promises are the word of the, are the Lord. And we look for a new heaven and a new earth where dwelleth righteousness. It doesn't say dwelleth sin and, and old age and, and bad health and all these horrible things that can happen to us. It says it dwelleth righteousness. But, you know, I always find it fascinating when you see something like this to go back and read some of the verses before it and after it. And it really brings it together. If you go back, you see in the, in the beginning, in the earlier verses in 2 Peter chapter 3, he says in verse 5, For this they willingly are ignorant of that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And then he says in verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. There's your global warming. And the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? And Peter, I think about that. You know, I like to go back to the details, and I like to go back and do a little history lesson when I read verses like that, which uh, the Lord drove me to yesterday morning. And I think about, who's, who's, who's writing this? Who is talking about this? And who would have the credentials to bring such a prophecy is he crazy? Is this one, another one of these Harold camping things that one day that the earth is going to burn up so everybody give your titles to your families and all this stuff? You know what Harold camping is? Is this just another wrangling? Then I think to myself, who was, it, who was Peter's best friend here on this earth? Peter's best friend on this earth? Who did he walk? Who, who, who did he, when he looked down in the water and he's walking and he's sinking, who, whose eyes did, was he on, and all of a sudden he started rising in the middle of the ocean? Yes. Who wasn't on the shore cooking fish and making dinner when Peter was out in his boat and he threw off all of his clothes and he went in the shore? He couldn't wait to see him. This is after he denied him. Who better would have the credentials to say a future definite prophecy than the very one that walked with Christ himself? What an incredible credential. You, we, you get into the Galatians chapter 1, which we're going to be looking at soon. And I'm telling you, Paul comes right out and he says, Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, by the personal, paraphrasing, the personal relationship and the personal direction of Christ himself. I mean, if you can't trust these words, I don't know, what, there's nothing left. There can't be anything left. But when Peter says, he's saying here, to those that will listen, what like Christ says, he that hath ears that hath ear, hear, let him hear. Here we're reading here in verse 153, consider mine affliction. 154, plead my cause by David. David says in 155, salvation is far from the wicked. It's no wonder. Look at what we just read by Peter. No wonder it's so far. The ungodly cannot understand this prophecy of what really is going to happen. 
Peter just said what's going to happen. He said the heavens are going to explode and come down and the whole earth and everything wicked is going to be completely burned and he said the Lord is going to build it up. Now he's not talking about the seventh, the highest heavens where God is. He's talking about the heavens where there's the stars and the moons. The moon and everything is going to come down and, and that's also reified in the book of Revelations. And so he's saying, be ready because with all of this coming... And this is what bothers me about Super Bowl Sunday. Today is the Lord's Day. All right, so you're going to watch the Super Bowl later. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. But look at all the people that are going to just stay back from God's house and not even consider on Sunday at all anything about the Lord. Well, what Peter says is very important. He says with all of this happening, Christ could come as a thief in the night. You know, by the time you walk out of this church or by the time you go home, you could actually see some, some of these prophecies taking place. Nobody knows. No man knoweth the time or the place Christ said it. And how are we going to be ready? Well, one of the ways that we can be ready is to honor the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. But then David comes back and he says, Great are thy tender mercies. Look at verse chapter, look at Revelations chapter 21, verses 1 and 2 that read. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is a prophecy. And actually, we have actual footage and an actual recording of John the Beloved actually saw this holy city. The Lord let him peer into it and he let him see it. Then we see here that David begs God to hear his cause, as we saw back in 149. God is never unmindful of his people's afflictions. He loves for us to remember him always, and even in times of distress. As we read in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 26, Put me in remembrance. And he says, let us plead together. There's your Wednesday night prayer meeting right there. Let us plead together bearing one another's burdens, praying together. How important that is. Declare thou that thou mayest be justified. And we see here how God's word assures David of where to turn in times of mourning and distress. You know, going forward, if we cannot plead our causes before God, then where do we go? David said, as there is nowhere to go for the wicked, those that commit their afflictions to the Lord are those that are upright in heart. They go to God and they wait upon Him for deliverance. They push forward no matter how hard things are. You know, I consider two people here, and I have quotes from one, because we've heard quotes from the first one many times. But I would like to read some quotes from the second. But the first one is John Calvin. And how important it was for him that when he was very sickly, he had horrible digestive issues. He finally died, but one of his afflictions was a problem with his kidneys. And when he was extremely ill, and back then they didn't have nearly the treatment, of course, that we have now for these conditions, he was dying. He begged the elders to pick him up so he could preach another sermon. That's how he loved the Lord. He wanted to be dragged out of the pulpit. And so basically they picked him up and he preached one last time and then he died. He was only like 57 years old. Well, he wasn't that old. You know, it's incredible. The next, the next gentleman I'm going to bring up was about the same age. George Whitfield. He had a very bad stomach disease and eventually died of this chronic illness. 
And his last sermon in Massachusetts was, Massachusetts was preached on top of a barrel in a field. And, one of, and, and that, along that span of time, basically he was preaching. He had been ousted out of Europe over there because he would not conform to the church's conditions on preaching the gospel. They didn't want to hear anything about God's providence. They wanted, it was all works-oriented, and it was all kinds of things. And he came over here several times on a boat that took weeks to come over here, and he preached all up and down the east coast of the United States of America and came right through here. He preached up in Delaware. He preached up in Connecticut. And they said that he preached so much, more people heard his orations than George Washington's. Millions of people heard him at any given time. Fifty and 60,000 people would come and listen to him preach. And it got, to be so, it got to be so volatile, they were coming to listen to him give the gospel. They were literally crying. They had local, a local circus on the East Coast. I think this was somewhere in Delaware. They had a local circus, and the people left the circus, came over to hear him preach, and the people were so furious, they were throwing dead cats at him over at a cemetery. He was preaching on top of a vault. That's incredible. And Whitfield preached his heart out until he was about 50, I think he was 55 or 56 years old. And all of a sudden he got real sick. And after preaching on top of this barrel in a field, his last words were, I would rather wear out than to rust out. He died the next day and his request had been that he would be buried under the pulpit in the First Presbyterian Church in Newburytown, Massachusetts. And I'll never forget the sermon. In fact, 2014, the sermon that Pastor Steve Lawson gave down at the Bible conference, he had just written a book about Whitfield and he had just preached in that pulpit and George Whitfield is buried under the pulpit. He loved that. To him, that was an honor. He thought that was wonderful. And I I remember reading his book and how that was something that really encouraged him to be able to do that. He preached in that very pulpit. You go up to the old Marcus Hook Bible Presbyterian Church, many of you have been there. They've got the pastor. He's buried under the, under the floor in the basement. And uh, that's incredible history there. We don't have to worry about that church being torn down, Lord willing. Well, these are two men that had afflictions. And even in the end of their life, they still wanted to preach the Word of God. We read in Isaiah chapter 51, verse 22, Thus saith thy Lord, the God, and thus saith thy Lord, the Lord, and thy God that pleadeth the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken out of thine hand the cup of trembling, even the dregs of the cup of my fury. Thou shalt no more drink it again. And the Lord says, I'll take care of you. Look at some of the quotes from George Whitfield. He was an incredible pastor. He said, Study to know him more and more, for the more you know, the more you will love him. That's the problem with people don't believe in Christ. They talk and they have all these words about how they know that Jesus is a good person and a good teacher, and they say these things, but they don't study him. The more you study him and the more you read about him, the more you will grow closer to him and love him. He said, if you are going to walk with Jesus, you are going to be opposed In our days, to be a true Christian is really to become a scandal. He's talking about the 1700s. What about our day today? What a scandal it is to go out and preach the word of Christ. And then he said one more thing. He said, true conversion means turning not only from sin, but also from depending 
on self-made righteousness, being very careful of depending on self-made righteousness, not, not to do it. He says, those who trust in their own righteousness for conversion hide behind their own good works. This is the reason that self-righteous people are so angry with gospel preachers, because the gospel does not spare those who will not submit to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And what is he saying here? People don't think they need a Savior. That's, that's kind of an arrogance that people carry. They don't believe they need to be saved. They believe that God is obligated to do whatever they want Him to do. He's basically their cosmic little bellhop. Do whatever I want you to do, Lord. That's the God I worship. And they turn him into something that he's not. But then David moves on. He says, plead my cause. He's saying, please, Lord, hear me. Hear my pleading afflictions and deliver me, O Lord. Hear Jeremiah, very proficient. Jeremiah was very proficient. And uh, David says, plead my cause. And then we see Jeremiah, who's very proficient with his his words. He says, where to go with his sorrows? Could someone look up Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 34, please? And then we're going to go back a little bit, back in Jeremiah. So kind of stay there. I'd like another series of verses read if you you could help me out there. Jeremiah 50, verse 34, first. Thank you, Noah. And you know, I was reading last night, I'm going through the book of Numbers, and I'm going through the book of Numbers, and I was reading late last night, and I saw another verse about entering physically into the Lord's sanctuary. And he was telling the Israelite priest to offer the oblations. He was talking about each one of the tribes, and I think it's fascinating. I mean, it's fascinating that it's actually detailed in number. How many calves? How many bullocks? How many goats? And how to do it, how to burn them, how to do it. And then he tells them when he's coming all the way down, and all of a sudden, Aaron and Miriam start questioning Moses. And the Lord says, he's mine. He's basically saying, keep your ears open and your mouth shut. And he's saying, if you go into my sanctuary, if you do what I told you to do, your enemies are coming against you. And he said, I will plead your cause. He said, I will stand there, and when your enemies come against you, I will be there. Now, if you're Gideon, who would you rather have on your side? Tens of thousands of Midianite soldiers on your side or one God and 300 weak men? Who would you rather have? Because when the Lord says he's going to plead your cause, this isn't just for Gideon. This isn't for David. Just for David. It's not just for Peter who we read from in Jeremiah. This is for you. You plead the cause of the Lord and you honor him. You're going to see things happen that you never thought you're going to see. I promise you that. It may not always be fun. It may not be always easy. But you're going to know He's holding your hand. You're going to feel it spiritually. And that's a great connection to our Lord. I saw something yesterday that bothers me. And there are some things that bother me. And I'm not even going to say what I feel like doing when I read this. But I'm just going to be reverent about it. I see this new advertisement for a new church up in Parkton. Young guy, Lord bless him. I'm going to pray for him. I'm going to pray for him. So he's got a church for like it's almost four, four or five years now. He puts it in, he's putting it on social media and stuff. I, I tripped over it. And he says, I'm the new pastor up at this church up in uh, north, it's up like in north, uh, central North Maryland. And he says, I'm now where we have this church. It's a spirit filled church. We have contemporary worship, free pizza on Wednesday nights, 
and free this and free that. And that's all it says. So I'm looking at some of the comments. He went from 10 to 60 people within like three years. People are coming and they love it. And it's all, there's nothing about the gospel. There's nothing, about, all it says is a, a worship service from like 9 to, to, to 1230. It's all contemporary worship. But all of it is the, the drop down of what he's offering are gimmicks and advertising. And we are going to somehow here help you with your afflictions. We're going to take them away. And, and we see that in churches around all over the place now. And that's what we're seeing. But where is Christ on all in the middle of this? Where is, the, where, where is the teaching of sin and the teaching of God's judgments and the teaching and pleading the cause of God and honoring Him? And we're seeing a great falling away. And so Jeremiah, he also speaks here. Can someone look up Jeremiah chapter 15 and read verses 15 to 17? The Lord had told Jeremiah to preach, and only those of all around him would only pay attention for the most part to the idol worship of the day. Jeremiah would go to the Lord and say, I cannot go no more, but thy word is true, and it's part of me. He was almost like Elijah, almost wanting to give up. Jeremiah 15, 15 to 17. Who has that? Thank you, Matthew. You see what Jeremiah is saying here? What is he ultimately saying? If I could interpret this, correct me if I'm wrong, please. We're here to talk and to help each other out. He's basically saying I'm alone. He's saying that I am suffering from loneliness. He's basically saying here, I sat not in the assembly of the mockers. Well, if today, if you're not sitting in the assembly of the, of the mockers, and you can see who the mockers are by reading the signs out in front of their church, if you're not sitting amongst them with their congregation of three and 400 people, it's very lonely. It's, it can be very lonely if you're not sitting with the mockers. And especially those that have no interest in church whatsoever, you can do all kinds of things with them. If you're willing to forsake Christ, I sat not with the mockers. And Jeremiah is saying, I'm very alone. This is tough. But the Lord said, I'll never let you go. Back, back, to, back, back, back to Jeremiah. He says, thy words were found and I did eat them. Remember how Ezekiel ate them. He ate the scrolls and they tasted as sweet as honey. We just read how Jeremiah begged God to avenge him of his persecutors. And David, David says here that salvation is far from the wicked as we go forward in our, in our text here. Basically what he's saying is they do not only not do God's statutes. Number one, they hate them. Number two, they do not seek them. Number three, they will not acquaint themselves with them. Number four, they do not want to know the duties to the testimonies of God. And number five, they shall not receive anything from the Lord. That's the, that's the malediction for those here that hate the Lord, that are mockers. They, don't, they, they not only do not do His statutes, they hate them. Boy, does that really reign free today? Well, people love the, love the effects of them, they love the protection of them, but you're not even allowed to bring them up in public schools now. They've taken them and ripped them off the walls. Said it over and over again. I can't say it enough. I because I can't believe it. 
I do, I know it's happening and I know it's a reality, but I just cannot process how you take the Ten Commandments off the wall for little children not to read and you just throw them out. And then you put all the self-help, all the stupid stuff up. And, and you just take God's law out and you just basically eradicate it. When man is adversity with the Lord, he shall not seek the favor of the Lord. What does David say here? Many are my persecutors and mine enemies, yet do I not decline from thy testimonies. But he said, I beheld, in verse 158, I beheld the transgressors and was grieved because they kept not thy word. That's the mark of a Christian. Are you grieved when others mock God's word? When, when others make fun of it, and they, are you grieved? Does it, does it feel like you're just being jabbed in your heart? Like when someone mocks or, or takes the Lord's name in vain? Does it, does it feel weird? Well, David goes on and he says, many are my persecutors. He says, I beheld the transgressors and I was grieved. And David lamented over internal enemies such as Saul and external enemies such as Goliath over his reign. And there were great many. Saul not only hated David, but all those that were around him. David was very thin-skinned toward the hate and was grieved that Saul felt as such. David had told Jonathan in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 3, And David sware moreover and said, Thy father certainly knoweth that I have found grace in thy eyes. And he saith, Let not Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly as the Lord liveth, as thy soul liveth, there is but a step between me and death. And he, kept, he was telling Jonathan that his father's trying to kill him. That's tough. That's pretty tough. And, and, and here David loved Saul. He loved him. And it just, it, it crushed his soul that the man that he loved turned his back on him. You ever had that? Somebody you love and they turn their back on you? And they just basically do it kind of quietly and they get really quiet. Quiet tension. And you just don't hear from them anymore. They don't want to talk to you. That's tough. It happens. It happened to David. It's part of his affliction. He's talking about it here. He says, many are my persecutors. Surely Saul would pursue David to kill him. David never forgot. David would cry out, deliver me from the oppression of man. And he knew that he was a slave to sin. Well, you see here in verse 159, consider how I love thy precepts. Quicken me, O Lord. Make me alive, O Lord, according to thy loving kindness. Look at, you go back to uh, Psalm 119, verse, verse 119, from 47, and you see how David at one point, he says here, and I will delight myself in thy commandments, which I have loved. Consider how I love them. And as we finish up, you see, we see in verse 160, thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. What's he mean by in the beginning, from the beginning? Was there a point in time where there were gaps in the Bible? Were some of the miracles compromised and the authenticity of them were compromised because they're not real? Well, David says here that from the beginning, when we read in Genesis 1-1, if that think that that's what he would be referring to. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. Darkness fell upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. That's where he's going back to. He says, from the beginning of the very first second of the earth's creation, he says, thy precepts 
Thy righteous judgments endureth forever. Oh, that's a question this morning. Do we trust in the Lord's Word? Do we trust in what He has told us? God's decrees from the beginning, they've never failed. You know, they can be counted on without fail and without flaw. Here David is comforted by the mercies of God to be faithful to those that love and follow God's law. And it's true from the beginning. Ever since God revealed creation and all things, He's revealed Himself to mankind. He can be trusted. He, his word is true, and the church is built upon this rock, and Christ is the truth. Someone please look up John chapter 16, verses 12 to 14. That's John 16, 12 to 14. We'll finish here in a minute. This is part of the consolatory discourse that Christ gives before he goes to the cross and he's literally praying to the Father and this is what he says here, John 16, 12 to 14. Should have it in red letters. There's no perhaps here. There's, there's no maybes. He, the Lord says that He is going to send this Spirit of truth and He's going to lead us to the truth. What's the problem with that? Well, for the Christian, well, we rest upon that. That's a foundational principle that we can count on. But for the others that live especially in a cultural community today, science and relativism have taken over. And so basically what they have said is even the Word of God can be questioned. Even, even we can't trust that anymore, they say. It's written, we saw seven, seven uh, principles or seven wicked applications several weeks ago about why the Bible is not at all inerrant. And we see one of them is relativism, because everything else counts. Everything is inspired Word of God. This man said the Koran was the inspired Word of God. The Vulgate was inspired Word of God. The Apocrypha was inspired Word of God. No, it wasn't. The Lord allowed them to be written under their own damnation, but His holy inspired word stands above all of this, and it crushes all of it. And when Christ says, I'll send the spirit of truth, what does that mean? What does it mean when He says, I'll send the spirit of truth? He says, oh, I'm going to send the spirit of truth. And He means that. Right, and that's where we live today. We are in the age of the, we are in the, age of the Holy Spirit guiding us, directing us, showing us that truth and taking that and using it to answer for a hope that's within us, witnessing, teaching others. I don't understand why that's so hard to understand, but I guess it, I'm, I'm guessing and I really believe that it is very hard to understand if you have no interest in watching or reading or, or even learning about it. But if you can go into Scripture, you can start anywhere. I don't care if you're going through the begats or you're going through what we were talking about before the sacrifices of the 11 tribes. You go back into the book of Numbers. Whether you're talking when you're reading the story of Gideon, or you're reading David, or you go into you read about the captivity of Babylon, or go into the New Testament, through the Gospels, to the crucifixion, if you keep this central motif in, my, in mind, that the whole central part of Scripture, what Christ gives us, is about redemption, about salvation, and Christ's servitude to us, you will get so much more out of Scripture 
if you remember, you give it all priority and you give it all your reverence and you don't question it. And then you will get much more out of it. I promise you that. And that's what David is teaching. 176 verses in Psalm 119 over and over and over. And the names that he gives the scripture. You know, the more you hear that, the more it seeps into your heart. You think, hey, you know, God's word, you know, it is his precept. It is his prophecy. It is his, it is his judgments. It's, it's his testimonies. All of these things are true. They really are true. And we have to remind ourselves because we're always questioning things. So the final question here is, we worship the God of truth. Do we believe that? And in order to believe that, there's action. We need to honor the Lord and we need to drive towards that and we need to read it and ask the Lord to, to open our hearts and our eyes up. Let's finish with prayer this morning. I'd like to ask maybe, Matthew, could you close us in prayer this morning? Thank you.